Hey, everybody, we are back. This is Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards with a new episode of The Taste. Thanks very much for coming back for what is our 58th episode. If you want to hear all about the world of wine, check out episodes 1 through 57, which are available at SchaeferVineyards.com, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and all the other places you get podcasts. Today's guest is a guy I've been looking forward to talking with for a long time. There's a lot about his story that may surprise you. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. Hey everybody, Doug Schaefer here. Welcome back for another episode of The Taste. Uh, today we've got a longtime friend and an awesome winemaker, especially with Pinot Noir, Syrah. Adam Lee, Adam, welcome. Thanks, Doug. It's good to be here. It's uh, Before we get going, you, I've got to tell the story. So it's the late 80s, early 90s. I'm, uh, I'm here at Schaefer. I'm out on the road selling wine, which basically is I'm in some sales rep's car going around to accounts, retail stores, restaurants, meeting the buyer, pouring the wine, telling the story, trying to make some sales. And I'm in Austin, Texas. I'm at this great little, great shop called the Austin Wine, Austin Wine Spirits, I think it was called. Still there to this day. It was the place in town. I'm there in the shop, waiting with my rep, waiting for the buyer who's out in the back room with another winemaker. And uh, so there's this guy behind the, behind the counter, working the counter, and we start chit-chatting and it's this young kid, and he's like, man, I really, man, you make wine? I said, yeah, I make wine. He goes, man, I want to do that. I said, well, let's do it. Go, go do it. He goes, how do I do it? What do I do? Do I got to go to school? I said, my recollection, Adam, you might disagree, is I, th- I think I just said, just go out and go out to Napa or Sonoma and get a seller job. You learn on the job. You can do it. And you were like, it was you. And you were like, okay, I'll do that. And I didn't think anything of it. And two or three or four years go by, and the next thing I know, I'm reading about Adam Lee and Suduri Wines. And I was like going, I know that kid. He was in that store in Texas in Austin years ago. That's, uh, so that's where we first met, as I recollect. That was the day that you were allocating Merlot. I remember that. That was the big <laughs> thing. That was the, the hot Schaefer wine was the Merlot. That what? That's true. That's the Merlot era. That's true. But uh, is, am I, is my memory right on that one? That's how it happened? It's com- it's completely correct. Yes. You told me to just go for it, give it a shot and come on out. And it's kind of what I did. I didn't end up getting the seller job, but I followed that path of, of believing that you could take that chance and move out and, you know, go West young man to quote my old history uh, professor. And, and I came out and took a chance. I, I love it. I love it. Cause I've had that chat with many, many people through the years and as far as I know, you're the only one that made it happen. So congratulations, my friend. I, I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that was, uh, and I still think is fantastic about this business, is how encouraging people are to people who really do want to pursue that dream. I mean, I'm sure you have Harvest interns there. You, you've had interns. And the, these people want to come and work and be part of something that we're fortunate to be part of. And uh, I, I think... People are open. Winemakers are open. Winery owners are open at sharing information and, and uh, encouraging the new generation. It's fun because uh, anyone who wants to get into it, usually they've got a lot of passion for it and are compassionate about it. And uh, being around people with passion um, is, 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 a, is, is an upper. It's great. I mean, it just it gets us, it kind of 
gets me recharged when, when that happens with young kids. So it's, it's always fun. But speaking of young kids, let's talk about your story. Talk to me. Where'd you grow up? Let's go all the way back. Sure. So I grew up in Austin, Texas. I was born in 1964. I was adopted when I was seven days old by two older Southern Baptist parents who didn't drink. <laughs> so consequently, I didn't drink until I got to college. Uh, I mean, I guess consequently, a lot of people drink even though their parents didn't drink. I managed not to until I went away to San Antonio, Texas, to Trinity University, a small uh, liberal arts school. I studied French history and I specialized in the comparative history of the French and American prison systems. <laughs> and that did not lead to a job after college somehow. Uh, wow. But yeah, I know. It was pretty esoteric. People, uh, I had this professor, he's actually now a very good customer. He's at Pomona. He's a dean down there. But he um, told me that if I wrote about Robespierre's role in the French Revolution, everything that could be written about it had been written about it. So I find something obscure to write about, and maybe I could get published and get into graduate school. And I went just about as obscure as you could go. But I didn't go to graduate school. And that's all because my junior year in college, I met this young lady who was a senior and she got a job after college out in Walnut Creek, California, working for Chevron. And I spent the summer between my junior and senior years out with her going wine tasting and fell in love with, uh, with wine and really decided that I wanted to get, uh, come back and get involved in the, in the wine business once I graduated. So I got a job working at, at that wine retail store in Austin. So that's how it happened. I was going to ask you because, you know, when did the wine thing kick in? Um, I, I, I was aware that, you know, your folks, you know, were Baptist. You guys didn't drink. But uh, so the wine thing didn't really happen in college. It happened afterward. That's what you're telling it, me. It, yeah, that junior year, I mean, I remember yeah. things like we would take um, that summer, uh, Chateau Saint-Michel Riesling to Stern Grove Park. Uh, I mean, we were looking for sweeter white wines at the time, but I discovered this one place that we used to love to picnic, and it was overlooking vines and a river, and the first red wine I ever fell in love with uh, of any sort was the 84 Rocchioli Pinot Noir. And that, um, I mean, Rocchioli is obviously still one of California's great Pinot Noir producers. And basically, I jokingly tell people uh, the love with the, the girl didn't last, but the love with Pinot Noir did. Well, I was going to say, that's another question, but you're way ahead of me. I was going to say, because yeah. you know, you've been all about Pinot Noir. And I, was, I was curious about where that kicked in. So it was, it was that first bottle. So if that had been a bottle of Cabernet, it could have been Cab, maybe? Or not it could it could have been cab <laughs> as a texan you got you got to be kidding me of course it could have been cabernet i think texans got to make up you know a good quarter of your mailing list or something we, that's there, true we sell a lot of wine we sell a lot of cabernet in texas that's a true statement how's pinot noir in texas it's probably okay uh, yeah pinot is good you know it uh i always think of texas kind of as as three very distinct markets um you, you've got Austin, who always wants to be very, very cutting edge. And so when Pinot became popular, Pinot was no longer popular in Austin. And they started looking for Gruner or something really unusual. Uh, then Houston, where they're kind of right on uh, what's what's happening, what's what's popular at the moment. And so you see Pinot doing very, very well there. And then Dallas is a lot of old oil money kind of thing. Um, and uh, they have they, they stick with some of the truly great traditional wines of the world. And they sell a lot of Cabernet in Dallas. All right. So 
you fell in love with wine. The, the, the girl thing didn't work. The wine thing did. You go back, you finish college. But so senior year, you're like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do this wine thing. Is that where your head was at? You think? Yeah, I had talked about graduate school. I considered the possibilities. Um, I'd looked uh, and really thought, okay, I'll just take a year off and work in this wine store. I'd started going to wine tastings uh, at the shop. It was a gentleman named Sam Kindred. Sam owned the stores. And uh, he would put on the tastings. And Sam was brilliant, but he was always fairly disorganized. And so he would show up late for the tastings that he was putting on, juggling glasses and the wine samples. And he would come to me and say, Adam, I will comp you the tasting if you'll help me get it set up in a hurry. <laughs> and as a young kid with no money, I was like, sure. And I did that. And he eventually said, Adam, you know how to, you seem responsible. You show up on time. I think you can do basic uh, bookkeeping. So I would like to hire you as an assistant manager of a wine store. Did Sam, I know Sam, I knew Sam Kindred well. He was a wonderful guy. Did he, did he own that store, Austin Wine Spirits? He Sam? did. There were three okay. of them. So okay. there was, yeah, there were three of them. And one of them um, was John, uh, is owned, was owned by, or managed by a guy named John Rinnick, who John right. who owns Austin Wine Merchant now. But okay. yeah, Sam was the owner of the three stores. Got it. Got it. Because then Sam, I think when he got out of that, he started working for a distributor. And I, I remember riding around calling on accounts with him. That's where I met a lot of people in the Th business. That is correct. Yeah. 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 Wonderful guy. Yeah, he was a little bit disorganized. I do remember that. Um, all right. So you're, you're working in a wine shop. You were there in Austin for what? couple years how long how long were you there yeah i was you know that was a time uh, where the opportunities to learn about wine were, were huge uh, we had we were the local lazami duven chapter so that allowed us we put on tastings frequently uh we um, you know, the, the vintages with California Cab, 84, 85, 86, with Bordeaux, 85 and 86, uh, 85 Burgundies. Uh, we brought in the wines from uh, Marco de Grazia, the German wines from Terry Thies. There was just a, a string of absolutely incredible wines that were available to taste. I, that I was able to, to sample and learn about these wines. And I think it only just spurred a greater, greater love for me for wine in general. And um, eventually I moved up to managing one of the stores. Uh, I also would work, interestingly enough, on Friday and Saturday nights in a restaurant on the floor in exchange for free dinners on <laughs> Sunday and Tuesday nights. And I would work selling wine. And it was a restaurant called Jambalaya owned by a guy that I know you know, uh, Leon Sakota. Leon, that was Leon's place, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I did not know this. Leon's a wonderful guy. He's a distributor guy now, but he, he'd start out in the restaurant business. It was in Austin. That's why I first met him. He was just leaving that. But I didn't know you were hooked up with Leon in those days. How funny. That's great. Oh, and it was such a blast and so amazing. And, and um, it was a great opportunity. Like I would have free dinners on Sunday night. And if, you know, you're a young single guy and you bring a date into the restaurant and Leon, Leon, the reason he's a great distributor is because he's, well, to put it mildly, he's a kiss ass. He's good at it. I mean, yeah. and that's what you need in a distributor sometimes is somebody who can out there and, and sell stuff. And he, um, he would say things oh mr lee it's so good to see you again and what a <laughs> wonderful young woman you have with you would you like your usual table in the corner oh, and 
Just yeah, it worked out it. very well. Yeah, it worked out well for a single guy at the time. He, we call Leon, we, he's a sweet-talking Charlie, which is a compliment. I love it. So you're there, you're doing that. Um, now, Austin's really close to Texas Hill Country, some great play, a great area to grow grapes and make wine. Were you, were you running around out there? I did. I went out. Um, I still remember that one of the greatest bottles of wine that I've had. I mean, you know, we can go through and we can name the, most of these memorable bottles. You know, you had this old Margot or you have this old Hillside Select or you have whatever. I mean, they, they, these fantastic bottles. But I remember the first time I really spent any serious time with a winery owner, winemaker was out at Fall Creek Winery out in the hill country. And Ed Aller was the owner of that winery. And we're walking through the vineyards and it's hot it's texas hot obviously and he has a backpack on and he pulls out from the backpack a bottle of rosé white zinfandel probably even that he had kept chilled and he just pops the top on it and we pass it back and forth drinking it out of the bottle um walking through the vines and <laughs> to, to this day I, I it's something that i've long been convinced of and i mean that really put it in my mind was great bottles of wine i mean you want the wine to be of quality you don't want it to be flawed but but it's about who you're with and the experience and, and that whole thing. And sitting there for my first time, really to spend that much time with a winery maker and winery owner in the vineyards, walking the vines and having that bottle, that bottle still stands out in my mind. Ah, that's great. That's a great story. Hook, hook and hook and rosé right out of the bottle. I like that. Um, so, all right. So we'll kind of jump in a quick question. Did you ever think about yeah. making wine in Texas? I, you know, I um, did not at the time. I really didn't see it uh, at that moment as being something that was going to um, to take off. Obviously, I've been wrong about that. Texas wines have done very, very well. Uh, but I, um, I really just thought California was the place. And that time where I spent that little bit of time out between my junior and senior years, I really fell in love with it out here in California. Got it. So that's that was the idea. So I think you you did a you moved up to Dallas. You had a stint up there, right? I did. I, I so I briefly worked in wine wholesale and did very poorly at that. <laughs> uh, that was not for me. Going around, there's a lot more rejection when you work in wine retail. The people who walk in the door all um, want to see you. They all want to buy wine. It's pretty easy when you are a wholesaler, a distributor, and you're pulling a bag and you walk in. Um, a lot of times the people don't want to see you at all. They don't have the money to spend or, you know, you're there. You got to collect a, a check at the time or whatever. So I, I didn't do very well at that. But then uh, one of the places I was calling on was Neiman Marcus uh, department stores up in Dallas. And Neiman's had a gentleman, a wine buyer named Mike Friend, but they needed another person to be the a second buyer, second person to work the wine department. So. I knew they had an opening. I was not very happy working as a distributor, um, and I decided to um, give it a shot and go work at Neiman's, which was a fantastic place to work. You don't really think of Neiman's these days as having wine, but they had a great clientele and an absolutely fantastic selection of wines. Oh, yeah. I do remember those the programs they had and great wines. and. And great customers, you know, happy to spend the money and, you know, learn more about wine. So, 
I had a customer one time, he, he was like, I know Bordeaux well, but I don't really know Burgundy. And I think 88, 89, and 90 are supposed to be good years. Adam, can you put together like forty dollars or $50,000 worth of wine for me? And I mean, that's in those kind of dollars back at the time. And, that, you know, things like that would happen. I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, I can do that for you. <laughs> I love it. So what uh, what happened up in Dallas? What and then because the next stop was California, but a few things happened, I'm sure. Yeah, a few a few things happened in Dallas. So uh, I always had really in my mind this idea of let me move out to California, let me get back out there and be involved in in the wine world out here. Um, I met a young lady, Diana Novi. Diana was the uh, one of the food buyers there in the Epicure department, and we started dating, and we ended up um, really deciding to some extent to move out to California together. I was ahead of her. And my idea at the time was, yeah, maybe make some wine, but I was also thinking about being a wine writer as much as anything. Okay. and. I um, I moved out a few months before she did, and then she followed suit, um, and uh, we came out here. I was uh, started writing a wine newsletter called Vintages, Vines, and Wines, and um, tasting wines, reviewing wines, but uh, we decided that if we were going to pursue this wine newsletter thing, we should try making a little bit of wine. And we were working at a uh, tasting room in Dry Creek Valley, and they we decided let's try making a little bit of wine, and Pinot was what we wanted to make. Where were you guys working? Uh, Lambert Bridge. Okay, okay. Small, very hands-on. You know how with small wineries and when wineries are really trying to build, uh, everybody, it's a team, and you, you work together, and um, that's that was the feeling of that place. It was it was pretty special. Got it. So you work in there. You guys were in the cellar or in uh, hospitality? Taste, taste, hospitality, tasting room. Uh, you do a little bit of everything at a right. place like that, but we uh, were mainly tasting room, but I, we didn't really have anybody to deal with distributors, so I would entertain uh, distributors if, if we were trying to court some people there. Uh, whatever was was needed, you end up doing it. You clean the bathrooms. You do that. It's anything and everything you have to do. Um, you you jump in and do it. Got and it. Uh, yeah, decided um, we pulled together our our cash and we had twenty four thousand dollars total, and uh, thought that it might be fun trying to make a little bit of wine. And we really wanted to make Pinot Noir, so we put an ad in. A publication called Wine Country Classifieds, looking for grapes and had like uh, for Pinot grapes and had four different people respond. And we ultimately ended up buying an acre's worth of grapes up in Anderson Valley. Okay. This is crazy. I've never heard this story. This is really fun. So you got, I mean, you're just scratching this out. So you, you, you buy it. So an acre worth of grape is what, a few tons? Four, three or four uh, tons? Yeah, at that time. So the reason we wanted to buy the acre was that we had read that Pinot Noir was um, very susceptible to yields. If you, if you have too much crop out there, that the quality is not particularly good. And so we wanted to work in the vineyard ourselves. So we purchased the acre. We paid a set price ahead of time for that acre uh, if that allowed us the right to go out there and do the shoot thinning, the leaf pulling, and the dropping of crop ourselves. Oh, really? That's kind of yeah. cool. You're th way ahead of the curve here on quality. Good for you. So you guys together, are you married at this point? 
Uh, we got mar- engaged right before the 94 harvest. Okay. And that was our first harvest. So we got engaged in September, and the harvest, 94, was a fairly late year in Anderson Valley. We didn't pick till early October. Okay, so here's the thing I was going crazy the other night looking at my notes with you. Where were you making the wine? Well, where'd you start? And through the years, where have you made the wine? Yeah. So Lambert Bridge allowed us to make the wine there that first year. I think they thought it was kind of cute and didn't really expect (laughs) much to come of it. Uh, And um, we ended up making 107 cases, four and a half barrels out of that one acre's worth of grapes that year. Uh, The next, and at some point... um, well, basically what happened is we ended up um, getting some decent press on that, thought it might be a little bit of a conflict. So we moved for the next three years to Delormier Winery in uh, over in Alexander Valley, and they under a real custom crush arrangement. I mean, Lambert Bridge allowed us to do it for next to nothing at right. the time. Um, I mean, we were working there. It was kind of a perk of working uh, there. Um, so 95, 96, 97 was at uh, Delormier. And then in 98, we leased a warehouse in a fairly industrial part of Santa Rosa and um, set it up as our own facility. That's cool. And this was the, this was the beginning of Suduri, your brand with, that, with Diana. That is correct. Yep. So 94 is the first vintage. So, okay. So you've got your warehouse. So how long, when did you guys um, stop working at Lambert Bridge and go full-time with Suduri? So basically what ended up happening was we, um, it was maybe the spring of 95. We had the wine in barrel. We thought it was good. We had a number of friends that would taste it uh, and they would tell us it was good, but y- your friends are going to be nice to you. And um, <laughs> yeah, I really would, in hopes of getting some free wine, right. basically exactly was why they would right. be nice. Yep. And uh, uh, we heard one day, we'd been drinking with some customers. That was one of the advantages sometimes at a small place, too. You you would taste with the customers, and occasionally you would drink with the customers. And we were drinking with the customers that day. And a fax came in from the wine advocate saying that Robert Parker was staying over at Meadowood and, uh, and was looking for samples. He was out for a Zap event. And we went home, opened another bottle of wine that led us to think that maybe Parker would like to try our wine. So we drove up to Lambert Bridge, pulled a sample out of the four and a half barrels, hand bottled it, put a little Avery white label on it, did a handwritten note about the wine and drove it over to Meadowood, left it with the concierge there and drove back over the hill. Actually, we stopped and had dinner at a restaurant called Trilogy that used to exist in St. Helena. And we drove back over the hill and uh, the next morning had one of those kind of fuzzy, what did we do last night moments. And then we were like, oh, crap, we left a sample for Parker and <laughs> thought we were going to get some horrible, horrible rating on it. We actually called uh, Meadowood and talked to the concierge and asked about getting it back, but it was too late. And uh, fortunately, three weeks or so after that, um, Parker left a message on the answering machine saying he thought the wine was terrific, but he lost all the notes on it. And about six weeks after that, the issue of the Wine Advocate came out, and it was one of their top 10 Pinots that year. And he printed our phone number, which was our home phone number. We didn't even have a business line set up yet. <laughs> and that's um, that's kind of where Siduri became known and uh, where we were like, uh, this could be a real thing. I mean, it, it went quickly from this is kind of fun to, uh, wow, a door has been opened for us. What do we do about this now? Well, that's, what, that's what's fascinating because – you guys are pretty unique. I mean, 
that was my recollection. All of a sudden, it's like, so Dury was all over the place. And I was like, who is this? And then it's like, wait a minute. I, I know this kid. <laughs> he used to sell wine in Austin, Texas. And it happened really fast. It must have been kind of crazy for you guys, going from like nothing to 60 miles an hour really fast. Very much so. Things, um, I, I mean, you can talk and we can all talk about how it got crazy as far as is making wine and that kind of thing. But truly running a business, running a wine business, uh, how to how to make that work was something that neither one of us had. I mean, we had some experience having worked at Neiman's and then worked at a, a, another uh, worked at Austin Wine and Spirits, but for setting it up, setting up that process, and alcohol is regulated in ways that other things aren't, and dealing, jumping through all of those hoops, a lot of stuff here that uh, we just didn't have any experience on, and we had to play catch-up to some extent. You bet. And so that's a, you got that going on, but here's another thing I have, I've got to ask you. Where'd you learn how to make wine? Well, how'd that happen? Yeah, it's it's a good good question, and really, it's from a lot of people, including people like you, Doug, uh, who were willing to answer questions for us. Where we would go, and I remember talking to Tom Rocchioli and um, tasting barrel tasting with him, and asking him questions, and then him telling me about these guys down the street, Bert and Ed at William Sellium Winery, <laughs> and I needed to go down there, and I went down and and. Uh, talk to them, Reg Oliver at El Molino, uh, right. there over in Napa. Uh, people like that were very, very open at sharing uh, information, and I think really our belief uh, started at, with that you need to get great grapes to begin with. Uh, th th there's no going around that to some extent. You, you had to get the best grapes. So we purchased the grapes by the acre. We read all we could and talked to people all we could about farming and um, spending time out in the vineyards. Uh, and then to a large extent, we let the wine make itself. And I mean, that sounds very cliched, and I know people talk about that. We really had to do it because we didn't know what to do. So to a large extent, wine did make itself. I actually think making wine is fairly easy. It's stopping, it's stopping it from becoming vinegar. That's yeah. <laughs> the hard part. That's true. That's a good point. Um, well, I got to tell you, I'm, thanks for sharing that because to me it's just fascinating. You know, the, you know, I mean, you guys took a path that was just so cool where you uh, did it yourselves, see to your pants. You know, you didn't do the Fresno State UC Davis thing. You didn't work in a cellar as an assistant winemaker or cellar rat. You just did it. I mean, it's just fascinating. And it's um, you don't hear many people getting to the quality point you guys got with Saduri wines in this manner. I got to hand it to you. I mean, my, I just, congratulations. It's really, really, it's a great story. It's really cool. I took a one day course at Davis on doing lab work, thinking maybe, <laughs> yeah. that, could, maybe that could take save us some money. And there's some <clears throat> point where you are measuring acidity, titratable acidity, and it requires looking at a color shift in red wine. And I am partially colorblind. And so in the middle of this, where the teacher's telling me, can't you see this? And I can't. And I realized I just lost $350 on a UC Davis class that I, <laughs> I can't even benefit from. That was kind of like, hey, I think that's my class. I've done one and I think I'm done. That's good. Well, you're making wine. You're making wine with your senses. But I'm going to roll back to something you said earlier because I think it's really important. Um, it's so important to get 
the quality of fruit and the location and you know great grapes to be able to make great wines. And that leads to the next question I've got up with you is, you've been making wine all over the place. And I want you to speak to this and tell the story how this happened, because I think... I think you've made wine from Santa Barbara all the way up to the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And, you know, harvest is kind of the same window of four, five, six weeks every year, and you're making wines, I don't know, you know the mileage, yeah. um, all these vineyards. I, I, I love you, man, but I've never understood how the heck do you do this. I mean, you know, you got to be running around like an idiot. I mean, how do you, first of all, why did you do it, and then how did you do it? Because you did it for years. So tell me all about that. Yeah, so I would love to say that we had a great plan as to making it come true. That, okay, this was an idea. That it was something akin to, it It turned out to be this way. It turned out to be something akin to what like maybe your stockbroker would tell you, which is, or your financial advisor, invest in stocks and bonds and this and that. And, and you know, diversify your risk to some extent. And that worked out pretty well for us, but that wasn't a plan. We didn't plan that out at all. Honestly, what happened was the general manager at Lambert Bridge had purchased some land up in Oregon and uh, planted it to Pino, wasn't sure what he was going to do with it. He, his in-laws lived up there. And he saw the way we made Pinot that first year and asked us, would you be interested in getting some fruit from Oregon? And we rather naively said, sure, let's, let's go for it. Oregon, <laughs> um, 1994, the year prior to us making Oregon Pinot, 1994 was a fantastic, fantastic vintage in Oregon. And we naively thought every year has got to be that fantastic in Oregon. And then uh, we started in 95, which was arguably the string, uh, three of the worst vintages in Oregon history, 95, 96, 97. And uh, that was a tough beginning with, with Oregon. Uh, we had in 95, um, we reached out and David Hirsch um, talked to us out on the Sonoma coast. And David always told us stories about how he had been getting some really great um, press. I mean, fairly early on, but the wines had been well received from some very, very famous winemakers. But he wanted to see, was it the winemakers or was it the quality of his grapes that made the wines uh, performed very well. And so he sold to us because he knew we didn't know what we were doing. And so that could, um, he could then judge whether or not, um, it was the, the quality of the winemaking or the quality of the grapes. And so that's how we got into the Hirsch vineyard. Um, in 1997, Gary Pizzoni in the San Lucia Highlands, he tried our wines at a place called the cheese shop down in Carmel, a fantastic still right. wine still store. Great. And yeah, Oh, yeah, absolutely incredible place. And he tried our wines there and thought they were fantastic and called us up and said he would like to sell us grapes. So there wasn't a plan for this, uh, but it turned out to be something that we loved Pinot Noir and, and still to this day love Pinot and love the expressions of Pinot in all sorts of different places. Well, you, you did it. And I, I, tell me about typically, yeah. how would you get through harvest? I mean, the logistics, <laughs> yeah, the logistics were really, really difficult. So I would leave to go check on vineyards. I would leave at about three, three thirty in the morning and drive down to Monterey to the Santa Lucia Highlands uh, on usually on a Saturday morning because there's less traffic. You really just have to worry about getting through the Bay Area. Once right. you hit Morgan Hill, you're in pretty good shape. 
um, I would then um, check those vineyards at sunrise. I would uh, and usually be done sampling, crushing them up and tasting the samples with the Francionis and Pizzonis by 11. I would then drive down to the Santa Rita Hills, uh, stay the night in Buellton at, at the Best Western Anderson Split Pea Soup Inn there <laughs> and uh, living it up. Uh, I would wake up early that morning, sample those vineyards. Uh, drive back up from there listening to Sunday morning NFL games, get to the <laughs> Oakland airport, jump on a plane, fly up to Oregon from there, look at the grapes up there, come back on Monday evening or Tuesday morning, and then deal with um, Sonoma County fruit. <laughs> and so, and but I, but Diana's got to be, she's by your side yeah. because I mean, she has. Definitely. Divide and conquer uh, was a big thing. Uh, one of the things that changed our lives uh, tremendously was in 1999, uh, we had our first child, uh, a son, Christian. And uh, at that point in time, we split things up a little differently. I dealt mainly with uh, Monterey, Santa Barbara, and Oregon, and she spent more time dealing with uh, Russian River, Son Sonoma Coast, Sonoma Mountain fruit. Makes sense. Makes sense. And so, and you're both, you're both tracking fermentations, I guess. You're just trading off who's ever around to take care of that. Watching it Completely. Right. And there were other things that happened, like we were trying to get in Marcy Kiefer, the Kiefer Ranch Vineyard, a great Pinot Vineyard, and we weren't able to get in for a couple of years. And um, Marcy really wanted grandchildren, so Diana took Christian out as a young, very, very young child and let Marcy, uh, as Diana's trying to convince her to sell a scrape, and let Marcy hold Christian. And shamelessly, we used our young son, and it worked. Diana managed to get us Kiefer Ranch grapes that year after, after after bringing Christian out there. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I, I get that. You know, I've, I've used my kids kind of that way. Not, you know, blatantly, but it just happens. They happen to be there and you know, it works. It's, you know, it's sure. kids, kids and dogs. It's all good stuff. Um, all right. Well, thanks for telling me about that. Obviously just crazy. I, my hat's off to you for, for doing that. And, and covering that much territory. But it, but the bottom line is you were seeking out the best fruit you could find and making yeah, beautiful we, pinots. No doubt. And, and what I've often believed, and I, I still to this day really believe that it's true, is um, that wine should have a very unique, very individual character. And as such, some people really loved our Willamette Valley Pinot, but maybe they didn't like our, our Hirsch Vineyard as much, or they liked the Pizzoni, but they didn't like the Clopepi as much. If they, as long as they didn't tell us it was poorly made, then if someone just said, I like this one better than I like that one, that to me was never a concern. And we definitely developed followers over time for certain vineyards. Right. It's, it's uh no oh, it's it's I I see that in fact I want to talk about that later because I tried a couple of those wines you brought me the other day, um, but then in '98 you guys launched a new a new brand called Novi. Talk to me about that. Sure. Uh, so '98 was the first year that we moved into our own facility. And we did a little bit of custom crush for some other wineries because we needed to pay for equipment. Uh, but it was a very small crop year for Pinot that year. And we were wondering, boy, how are we going to fill this place up? How are we going to afford to pay for everything? Uh, and we had a friend who approached us about some Syrah grapes. And we decided to make a little bit of 
Syrah that year, and um, Novi was Diana's maiden name. It uh, it meant new, and we thought that was a fun, you know, here's something new, let's give it a shot, and uh, made some Syrah, got her parents and brothers, came in as investors in the winery, helped, um, not large financial mm-hmm. investors, I mean, we started this out in the same hundred and kind of case range. But really, uh, really just began that process of trying to make some other things. Mainly, we focused on Syrah and Zinfandel. Got it. Got it. That's smart. And uh, was that it? I was curious about that as far as making those varietals under a new brand name as opposed to being part of the Suduri um, umbrella. Was there a thought to give to that? Was there a reason? Uh, a, a little bit. I mean, at that point in time, a few years in, Siduri uh, seemed like it was becoming known as a, a Pinot Noir producer, and we wanted to um, to really maintain that and keep it that way. I think once we decided to involve the family, it became pretty clear that it should be a different interest at that point in time and, and, and a different name. Uh, I think that's the... Um, I guess that's one of the interesting things that I'm not sure whether or not we did something good or not, but naming a winery after yourself, obviously y'all, y'all have done that, but you know, there are positives and negatives to that. And when you sell a winery at some point in time, as we later did, um, you're selling away your name. Right. And that, that's a little bit of a challenge. I understand. But at the same time, on the plus side, Suduri, as you said, was known, is known for Pinot Noir. And so keeping that focus... I think, I think, in my experience in the marketplace, is really important for the consumer. I mean, they, they know what Siduri is all about. It's like, well, Siduri has a Cabernet? They'd be like, what? What's going on? They'd, they'd be confusing to the marketplace. So um, it's like Schaefer making a Pinot, because every once in a while somebody will float that by me. I go, ah, oh, that just doesn't make sense. And, you know, we're Cabernet guys. So, um, you know, it's a, always a challenge to try to figure out what the, what the right move is. So fast forward, all of a sudden, 2015, speaking of selling, (laughs) we're there. What happened? Yes. (laughs) Well, we had grown the winery. I mean, starting at 107 cases, uh, we ended up being about 25,000 cases uh, at at that point in time. It would go up and down, one year 20,000, one year 30,000. I mean, that seems like big swings, but based on just vintage conditions in certain areas, it it could easily go up and down by that much. And um, it was going really well. Honestly, the the wines were selling well. Um, We got approached uh, by uh, some friends of ours, the the Benzigers, and um, we were just talking. Uh, I knew them well, and we chatted about the possibility. And I mentioned some offhand comment about um, I don't know. We were talking about what would ever happen. What would you? What do you want to do twenty years from now? And I mentioned something about if we were ever um, if we ever sold, I could see myself doing this or that. And uh, they came back a few days later and said, would you be interested in selling? So we kind of began the process then of pulling our financial stuff together, but not with really any real plan at that point in time of selling. And quite frankly, we ultimately called it off and said we, we, we brought in a, a broker, a guy named Mario Zapponi, who sells wineries for a living. We ultimately said, no, we don't want to do this. It's harvest time. Let's, let's call it quits and, and not do it. And uh, after harvest, Mario came back to us and said, Adam, I think there'd be some real interest. Would you 
consider letting me shop this around and just see what's out there. And I'm like, sure, it won't hurt at all to be shopped around. Mm -hmm. And it turned out there was some real interest and we had some real long discussions between Diana and myself as to whether or not this is something we truly wanted to do. Did we want to keep doing what we were doing or did we want to go ahead and sell it? And I don't know, Doug, to a large extent, it got to the point that while we ran the winery, I kind of felt like the winery was running us in some ways mm -hmm. more than anything else. Right. And I didn't have... Um, but Siduri had become known as someone who made fairly big, fairly rich pinots, one at different styles. And I kind of felt like maybe I wasn't sure, do we want to go on a different course? And, and we didn't feel free to do that. So consequently made the decision to, uh, after it was shopped around, um, to sell the winery to uh, Jackson family, Kendall Jackson folks. Right. No, that's great. And, uh, and I think, and you did, what was the agreement? You stayed on and kept working with yep. them? How'd that work out? I did. So there was um, a three-year contract, and that was in um, 2015, and I still consult for him to this day. So I've stayed around. They've been fantastic to deal with. I They've hired a new Siduri winemaker, a very good friend of mine named Matt, uh, Matt Rivlet. He's, he's really fantastic. But um, I continue to help them out uh, with some different Pinot projects, uh, doing some different things. They have vineyard sourcing from Santa Rita all the way up to Oregon. So kind of our, our Pinot uh, areas dovetail with one another. And uh, we were able to um, to work together, and and again, I continue to consult for him right now. Oh, that's great. That's that's really good to hear. Um, that's that's neat. It's neat so you can stay connected uh, with that, but also then freedom to do some new things. And that's one thing I want to talk to you about. Um, I think it was 2017. You started your Clarice project, correct? Yeah, so, so, yeah, I did. So that. Uh, I mean, I, I know that one of the things I listened to a number of your I've listened to a number of your, your podcast here and I, you do a fantastic job. But I was listening to the one with Donald Patz and you were talking to him about, you know, was there any conflict there with, oh, right. you know, you doing other uh, other projects? And Jackson's been pretty cool to work with. They basically are, you know, hey, if you don't get too big we're we're cool with this. You know, you just do the small <laughs> stuff hands on and. I kind of wanted to get back to the days where I was the one um, there doing the punch downs. I was the one really making all these these calls. I and mean, at some point at Siduri, 30,000 cases, you needed to um, to have a lot of hand off a lot of things to a lot of staff, that right. type of thing. And I didn't want that any longer. And I kind of had a different vision at that time on the way I wanted to make the wines. The vines I was dealing with had gotten older. That's one of the things in the story of California Pinot. So many things happened right after Sideways. There were so many new plantings, and you saw. Um, Pinots being made in fairly big, rich, uh, in fact, very big, very rich style, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit too much. So I, I don't think people talk enough about the fact that Sideways came out at the end of 2004. Right. And 2003 and 2004 were the two hottest vintages I ever dealt with for Pinot. And I don't think those wines stylistically were always what California Pinot Noir is best at necessarily, but people tasted them and they were very popular. 
uh, I kind of wanted to do something a little different. The vines were leading me in a different way. So I looked at um, two vineyards, the Rosella's Vineyard and the Gary's Vineyard in the Santa Lucia Highlands. I'm very, very good friends with the families that own those vineyards, the Pizzoni families and the Francioni families. So good of friends, I performed Jeff Pizzoni's wedding. I actually got licensed <laughs> and did that. So that's very good friends at that point in time. And um wanted to to do things differently a lot of whole cluster picking a little bit earlier uh, and really not doing anything to the wines uh, uh, no addition of yeast uh, uh, anything like that just kind of letting it make their own, uh, make itself if at all possible right well you dropped off a bottle of 2019 Clarisse to me and uh, we popped it a couple of days ago I got to tell you something, and I'm I'm not trying to give you an advertisement here or an endorsement, but I'm just telling you, winemaker to winemaker, it was really, really pretty. It was, you know, what I loved about there was this kind of softness, elegance about it. You know, the Pinot character. I'm starting, I'm starting to geek out here, but it's just love the nose and this the whole balance and fragrance was just. It was very. Adam was just elegant. It was just an elegant wine, and I I loved it. So my hats off to you. It's a beautiful wine. Well, thank you. That's um, that means an awful, awful lot. I really wanted um, it to kind of have that balance and elegance. Uh, honestly, Clarice was named after my grandmother, and my uh, grandmother also didn't drink. Uh, she was uh, a teetotaler, but she <laughs> had a real spirit to her, and um, she taught me to cook, and uh, she would cook uh, over long periods of time in crock pots because my grandfather was a, a, a farmer, and she never really knew when he was going to be coming home at night. So she would say, if you put the meat, the potatoes, the carrots, the broth, the seasoning all in at one time and let it cook slowly, they will all kind of meld together. If you add seasoning at the end, it really stands out so the whole philosophy at Clarice is to get all you can the best ingredients in the vineyard and then turn around and um, bring them in together disparate sections in the vineyard kind of do a field blend but bring them in and ferment them together nice nice tell me more about your grandmother because she's got a story Clarice. She does have a story. I need to hear this. Um, this is back. This is yeah, this is Texas back in the early 1900s, I think. But you, yeah, you she was bor born in 1896, and she was um, living in a small town called Giddings, Texas. And in Giddings, Texas, she had been arranged to be. Uh, married to the son of the pharmacist in town, which would have been a huge financial step up, a societal step up uh, to, to, uh, to do that. But she had fallen in love with a guy who was a farmer, and he, they would leave notes for each other underneath a rock down by the creek there in Giddings. And eventually, two days before her birthday, she eloped with him. They ran off on a horse and buggy, went all of 17 miles away to Dimebox, Texas. <laughs> uh, they were chased after by her brother and father, but it started raining that day, and they couldn't catch up to, uh, to her. And so my grandparents from that point forward were married for 67 years. I just and love it. I just, isn't that great? That's so romantic. It's so cool. It's so Texas. It's great. It, it, it is Texas. It's romantic. And, you know, it's funny, I, Doug, I never really found that story out until my mom told me later about it, Clarice's daughter, because my grandmother 
you know, I, obviously I met her later in her life and she was more of a grandma. She was the person she would let me eat the charms out of the Lucky Charms and not the cereal. Right. You know, she'd sit <laughs> on the floor watching Scooby-Doo with me, that kind of thing. But um, she wasn't going to tell me that story. But my mom told me that story about the background. And she told me in relation to the idea of moving out to California and taking a chance on making wine. And she said, you know, in, when you're young in your life and you don't really have that much to lose, that's the time to take those chances. Right, right. So it's a lovely wine. It's a great story. And also you're doing something, there's a whole new concept you're doing with, with sales and, and marketing. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah. So what I'm really trying to do there is to do um, something very, very different, which is starting a um, – it's a wine club per se. In some ways, you could say it's traditional that, okay, you you sign up, you get some wine, you're, it's a subscription. But what I do after you get the, the, the wines or simultaneously with it um, is you get to go to events and parties at other people's wineries. I hmm. – um, I, I try to involve other people. I, I'm under no illusion that uh, Clarice is going to be the only Pinot or the only wine they're going to drink of any sort. I remember the days uh, where we all were really working to support each other, certainly in the Pinot world, but uh, in California wine, we were underdogs. We were, uh, you know, I, I met Robert Mondavi twice in my life, and, and what he did really as far as promoting California wine, what a, a lot of people early, early on did, your, your father um, promoting California wine made a huge, huge difference. I worry a little that we have gotten um, so big and, and so successful that we spend time trying to take shelf space from one another. And what we need to do instead is to get more people drinking more good wine. So I like to do events. I've done events uh, at wineries down in Santa Barbara. I've done uh, events over in Napa with different wineries and, and uh, working with people there where my members come and they get special tastings at, at certain places. Uh, at the same time, we also do um, private Zoom tastings and Zoom events with members. I've uh, had uh, discussions on wine ingredient labeling. I had the head of the uh, African-American Vintners Association on talking about inclusivity in the wine business. Uh, do a lot of different things to try to make it more of a community. Nice. Nice. I like it. Good for you. Hey, I want to have a gig Oh, here at Schaefer with your customers, because I'm going to take those Pinot Noir lovers, I'm going to turn them into Cabernet lovers. That's what I'm going to do. Ah, ha. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you make a little more than just Cab. Maybe they could be a Shard lover, too. Shard so. lover, little Syrah. We can do, we can do a few things. So, yep. good. Thanks for telling us about that. It's a great project. Um, and so, after that, I'm bouncing back to Jackson family. In 2018, you're involved with something called Root and Rubble. Tell me about that. Root, yes. So Root and Rubble was a project, that, uh, an idea that I came up with um, after having spent some time in France in Chateauneuf to Pop and seeing some of the great producers there aging, fermenting and aging their Grenache in concrete. Okay. And I wanted to, and, and over there in Chateauneuf, they call uh the uh, Grenache, the Pinot Noir, you know, there's Chateauneuf's are a blend of multiple red grapes. Right. And they call the Grenache the, the Pinot Noir of those grapes. And uh, it came to me that maybe we could try making uh, a Pinot that is all concrete. Uh, oak is 
uh, a very expensive part of winemaking. And maybe there was something there about making a wine that wasn't just a light and fruity wine, but that we could try and do some experiments uh, and work truly with, with concrete. So we've been doing that as well and, and making an all concrete aged and fermented Pinot Noir. Nice. And so that's a, that's a KJ. Is that under the label Root it, and Rubble or is it a KJ? It's under, it's under the label Root and Rubble. Cool. Yes. Okay. Mm. I got to look for that one. And then you've got another project. Speaking of shot enough, I think you met somebody over there. Tell me about that. I did. I met a very, very good friend of mine, a gentleman named Philippe Camby. Uh, Philippe is one of the leading winemakers in, in the world, certainly in the Southern Rhone and, and um, in all of France. He uh, consults with 81 other wineries around the globe. Wow. And Philippe's just a, a big-hearted, wonderful, wonderful uh, gentleman. Um, he is someone that is um, incredibly knowledgeable, obviously, as far as winemaking goes. Uh, and we were drinking at his house, um, having dinner, uh, and he mentioned we were just talking about our, our lives in wine. And I was talking about my story, and he just mused kind of off the top of his head, I've always dreamed of making Pinot Noir. And I, I loved, loved that wording. I mean, Philippe, Philippe's three wine, first wines that he ever made uh, all got 100s from Parker. So he could have said, I think I could be successful at making Pinot. He could say, uh, I could make money doing it. I mean, there are many ways he could have worded it. But when he said, I've always dreamed of making Pinot Noir, that just really tugged at my heart. And I... Uh, huh basically emailed him uh, once I returned, thanked him for the dinner and mentioned that to him and asked him if he would be interested in starting a Pinot project together. So we started something called uh, Beaumarche. Uh, Beaumarche is really his interpretation of Pinot Noir. I'm kind of the shepherd uh, of that, but it's made in the same style and same way that he makes Chateauneuf de Pop. Ah, interesting. Because I we you gave you were so generous you gave us so much wine thank you um we we popped that the other day along with the Clarice very different expression of Pinot Noir and really kind of cool it was just it was different it was um I don't know it was earthier I got maybe I got a little a little more oak on it um, it was kind of a deeper Pinot. God, I've never talked about wines on this show at all. This is kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was uh, very different than the, from the Clarice in a, in, a, in a really cool way. So that was, it was how fun for you to be making these different styles of wine. Kind of be cool. You know, it is. And for me, it's also fun. I mean, Pinot is something now that I've done. It's hard for me to believe, but, you know, in the middle of the 28th harvest here in my life right now. And um, we're getting old, Doug. I hate to say it, but it's, it's true. No, we're and, not. No, we're not. We're just no. hitting our stride, baby. Don't even think got, about that. I got plenty of time to go. But uh, it's allowed me to look at Pinot in a different way. And that's something I never really imagined, uh, you know, 20 plus years into it that you could meet somebody, you could make wine, uh, really kind of following their advice in, in their direction. And that was so thrilling now that I take something that I know extremely well, like the back of my hand, and I look at it anew. And that's, that's really exciting for me. Well, that's gotta be fun. So you guys, you're together, it's a partnership. You're making the wines here, and he's over in France making wine right now this time of year. So how do you do that? Do you just get on the phone call and say, hey, it's tasting like this, it's looking like this? How's that work? Yeah, a lot of, I mean, things like Zoom, obviously, um, 
just the being able to 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 be in touch with one another, FaceTime, showing him the vineyards when I'm out there, taking pictures um, and talking about it, and then um, he comes over here three times a year, and we taste and we blend. That was challenged by COVID, not so much by oh, anything yeah. else. He wasn't able to get over here last year, so we ended up shipping samples to him, and I uh, I did that, and then ended up uh, managed somehow to get over there in June this past year and taste with him. Oh, good for you. Yeah, that probably was a challenge. Um, that's neat. Well, so you got a lot going on. I got to ask you, what's coming up? You got anything new? You got anything cooking that you, could, uh, that you can do. talk about? <laughs> yeah, there, there, there are a few uh, different things. I mean, I consult for a few other wineries. Again, Jackson's all cool with that as long as there's not anything huge, big. So I, I, I consult with a few different people, a, a vineyard called Bucher here in the Russian River. Um, I, I play with a few things. Uh, Philippe has talked to me and another producer in Gigandas about kind of doing the, the mirror reflection of uh, – of what we do with Beaumarchais. And so instead of Philippe's vision in uh, of Pinot here in California, maybe my vision of Grenache there in over in Gigandas in the Southern Rhone. And so that is something that we've been playing around with the idea. Uh, this year in France uh, was not the year after the frost that they had. And with COVID, um, it was not the year for us to take it on. But that's uh, there's some talks going on about that, so that could be a lot of fun. That'd be fun. Um, you know what? I, I I really want to make Chablis. I want to make Chablis, and there's only one place to make Chablis, and that's in Chablis because <laughs> I just love those wines so much. That's that's. One I, of my I, I agree with you, Doug. That it is a place that is so unique. I mean, California makes some incredible, incredible Chardonnays, but I don't think there's another place like Chablis. Oh, those wines, I just love them. Just love them. Anyway, and you know, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I didn't love them, and I do now. So again, as we change and experience different wines through life, you know, tastes change and preferences change, and it's uh, it's fun. It's a journey. It's a journey. It is. <laughs> so, Mr. Lee, where can people find your wines? What's the best? How can they get get a hold of Clarisse, if possible, or the Beaumarchais, Bar 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 the Root and Rubble? What's uh, how, how do they do it? So the easiest way really is just to go to ClariceWineCompany.com. You can sign up there for the mailing list. Um, and uh, most of it's sold through that subscription model. Uh, occasionally, I have some extra cases here or there. Same thing. And by doing that, I'll get you on the Beaumarchais list as well. So just please, you know, just go to ClariceWineCompany.com and you can sign up there. There's a little bit that's out, but it's almost all restaurants. I, I, Blackberry Farm does some uh, in Tennessee. Uh, a couple of the Bellagio, there are more places like that to get it than Clarice really doesn't appear in retail right now. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time during this busy time. You are really appreciate because I, I know what's going on with you and same things going over here, but uh, mornings are busy. Afternoons, we get a little bit of a break, so it's a good time. Thank you, Doug. This was fantastic. It was good to catch up. And, and when we all feel a little more safe um, in getting together in person, let's drink some Chablis together. <laughs> Sold, my friend. You take it easy. Great talking to you. Thanks for sharing your story. Take care, Doug. Thanks. See you. Bye. Adam Lee, what a story. Came out here from Texas and just started from scratch, figuring out how to make wine. And it sounds like there are many more chapters to go in Adam's story. I'm really glad he was able to come on the podcast today. 
If you get a chance, be sure to track down some of the wines from Clarisse, Root and Rubble, and Beaumarchais. And if you'd like to help other people find us, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes. Thanks again for spending some time with us. We'll see you next time. Thank you.